0: Thank you. College. Today, our Classical Conversation series returns, and I'm delighted to talk with Nobody. Yes, his name is Nobody, but we'll get to that. He writes wonderful poetry at his Substack Hyperpoesis, which is also his handle on Twitter. Both of those will be linked to the interview page. He's also the founder of Classics Downtown, an organization dedicated to reinvigorating American poetry. I look forward to discussing all this in addition to his provocative literary thesis on developments in narrative style from Chaucer and Shakespeare to Milton and beyond. Nobody, how are you? I'm doing well, yourself. Oh, beautiful. Um, so It's I a first pleasure to be here M- with me. Yeah, I first met Nobody in one of MetaPrime's Sunday spaces. Uh, in addition to his sense of humor, it became clear that he's a serious and thoughtful reader of the Western great books. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. So to start with Nobody, could you tell us about your name?
1: Yes, I am Nobody. Uh, the name comes from the Odyssey, specifically the scene where uh, Odysseus is asked to give his name uh, by the Cyclops, and the name he gives is Nobody. And this eventually becomes the way that he slips out of the Cyclops' trap. Uh, I'm a poet. You can find me, as you said, on Twitter and Substack. And if you're in New York City, you can uh, come to some of the classics downtown events. We do these readings centered around the Western canon. Uh, As Montana said, the idea is to inspire the next generation of poets with the best poetry from the past. So uh, that's me, and that's what I'm all about. Yeah.
0: So something, I don't know, it strikes me, or maybe it seems somehow like the name Nobody is like one of the, the great themes of the Odyssey to some extent, like Odysseus needing the Cyclops to know who defeated him. Seems to be something that really marks Odysseus's character. It may be something that separates him from Achilles, or I don't know. Just the fact that fundamentally, Odysseus can't be a nobody. He has to be a somebody, and he never questions that. Whereas it seems like in the Iliad, uh, Achilles at least asks the question: Is it good to be a somebody, and all that entails? I guess.
1: Yeah, and that dynamic really comes to a head at the end of the Odyssey, where where in order to get his kleos, his glory which, which it, for, for Odysseus is going to come from his homecoming, he has to disguise himself as a beggar, as a nobody inside of his own house to, to get that. So there's this really interesting play between uh, glory and anonymity in, in the Odyssey that you're right, you don't find that in Achilles. Right, interesting. So,
0: and maybe we'll kind of have that question like in the background, maybe for a lot of this, like what what does it mean to want to be somebody in a, in some sort of like, healthy sense uh or a negative sense i think maybe this will come out at the end too but um so what what is hyperpoesis the substack uh that has short poems and longer poems poems that seem to pay attention to like some sort of recent innovations or breaks you know as far as form goes and then some that look to me to be a little bit more classical so um i've had it's been a lot of fun to read them the last couple days but what, what, I what is
1: hyperpoesis? The hyperpoesis is this, I, this term I came up with back in college. And and I'm sure other people have theorized something similar to this. But the basic idea of hyperpoesis, it's a, it's a form of sentence or, or the use of language where, where the literal and the figurative end up completely coinciding with each other. So that a statement, you know, people tend to differentiate a literal from a figurative statement. But the idea of hyperpoesis is the idea that uh, a statement can be both literal and figurative at the same time. The example I always use is, is the very beginning of the Odyssey when he describes uh, life as a journey. Uh, because this is, it's profoundly metaphorical, but it's also completely literal in the sense that, you know, life is nothing if not a journey through time and space. So, so that's the basic idea of hyperpoesis. Interesting. So how, how long have you been writing poetry? just over over 10 years now yeah Mm -hmm. a long time yeah what what made you like what was the initial inspiration
0: because like i i whatever it seems like any you know sensitive young man or intellectual at some point you know tries their hand at poetry i I remember maybe 10 years ago i tried to write a poem about plato's alcibiades too because i didn't understand what the dialogue was about and i thought yeah writing a poem would help me and uh-huh. It didn't help me, and uh, it was really ugly. So I, I stopped. That was like the last time that I tried something like this. Um, yeah. What What was like the initial? Like what led this? What led this to happen? To try to become to, to so, become a
1: poet. Uh, I I suppose I had this. My education was sort of like a ladder. Looking back on it, uh, I first uh, became extremely interested in politics, uh, and that was really my my main study uh, in school, and and that eventually turned into political philosophy, you know, which which became for me an intermediary between politics and then philosophy as such like metaphysics and and ethics and things like that. And from, uh, politics, I I eventually moved into being, you know, a real student of philosophy. But from there, I found that poetry could go further in a way, uh, than philosophy could. And so I just sort of kept following that impulse, a very, you know, kind of elevated impulse to just follow the mind as high as it can possibly go. And it sort of led me into poetry. Interesting. So
0: what do you, yeah, this is really interesting. So what, what do you mean by poetry goes further than philosophy. Is it better at articulating the truth or revealing things or is it better? Yeah.
1: At human beings, or, or what, what does it do that goes further? I think that poetry is, uh, you know, the only known method to go from the known to the unknown. So, uh, you know, Wittgenstein has that famous saying that thereof, you know, when you can't speak of something, you, you have to be silent about it. And that's, true in philosophy, but poetry is the place where that not only becomes not true, but speaking about things that you don't know in poetry and using metaphor to try to extend the reach of the mind actually becomes a way of, of coming to know those things that you don't actually know, you know?
0: Huh. That's interesting. So does, and that, that makes sense to me that to go from the known to the unknown, there has to be some kind of bridge um and yeah and so,
1: metaphor and analogy is really that bridge
0: right interesting so yeah like so similes maybe do the same thing like they show some kind of hidden connectedness to all things that somehow these things that don't really seem like you can compare the two of them it turns out there actually is at least something they're at least like each other in some respect
1: um yes and on top of that uh, you know you could call it a metaphysical function of revealing the fact that things have similar attributes, it also has an educational function. Like I remember I used to work in uh, restaurants and when I, when I started becoming a cook, I remember the chef who was training me, he would all this arcane kitchen stuff that I had no idea about. He would use all these very basic metaphors from daily life to explain these things to me. And it clicks instantly when you do that. So it also has a real practical value. Ah, right yeah
0: so yeah this is i i I guess i used to be like obsessed with the question you know about like what separates poetry and philosophy And in some sense i've thought less about it recently And, and maybe sometimes when i read poetry i make like a big mistake in that i try to i don't know like strip it of all of its adornments in order to see what kind of you know what it's saying about how a human being is supposed to live or what it's saying about what's, you know, beautiful or noble or, you know, things along those lines, but it's like, I I really, I crave the arguments because those seem to me to provide, I don't know, like uh, clarity about what something is in a way that it seems like metaphor strikes me as like a step on the way to understanding, but that ultimately it seems to me that philosophy tries to go beyond metaphor to, if it's possible to give an articulation of what's under consideration, you can do it. But that you want right. an account of the metaphor, so maybe, right. maybe I'm like philosophy supremacist, So I'm really interested
1: to hear <laughs> about
0: the poetry. The, well, there's the a.
1: Theory. Do you know uh, the theologian Pseudo Dionysius the Areopagite?
0: I don't know. I don't know anything that he says.
1: He has this amazing theory about metaphor. That basically, when you're trying to describe something that's incredibly abstract, uh, metaphors are the most powerful way to do it. And, and the crazy thing is that. The more different the thing is from the thing that it's describing, the more powerful that it is.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, because it seems like there'd be like more like revelatory, uh, something more revelatory about that. Just something like, "Holy shit, that thing is like that thing." I'd never thought exactly.
1: Of and and the example he uses is in the Bible when God is described as drunk or God is described as sleeping for Pseudo-Dionysus, that kind of thing is way more profound than just describing God as just or God as, as good because it's, it's what comes between the lines when you speak in that way uh, that is so profound. And in a way, you can't say those things directly. You can only say them through that kind of analogy. And that, uh, that is, uh, you know... That's why I think Dante is, you know, more profound than Aquinas, for example. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Although, so
0: maybe I'll just I'll only say one more thing about this, although maybe it will come up again. But then, well, maybe I'm of two minds. Like on one hand, I think I agree with you about that, uh, that Dante is more profound than Aquinas. But, but then it seems ultimately that as the reader you have to provide some kind of account of what his images point to and that that account giving that account strikes me as more philosophical uh, than it is like poetic such that it seems like philosophy is helping itself to poetic means or that somehow Dante ultimately has some account about the cosmos and man's place in it. And that
1: hopefully you can say what that is, but then so, right. So that's on one hand. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, there's a great difference between, you know, knowing uh, that in which happiness consists and in actually becoming happy. And so Mm -hmm. part of, you know, Dante talked about how he wrote the Divine Comedy to take people out of misery and into happiness. Mm -hmm. And it's not simply a matter of just teaching you what that is or how to do that. The process of engaging with the text actually makes that happen. Mm-hmm. So there's, I, I, could, I guess you'd say there's an irreducibly magical quality to poetry that, that philosophy does not have. Mm-hmm.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. You'll yeah, have to think about these things, uh, these things more. So on your site, you like on the Hyperpolisa site, in your about page, you have a sort of th- short three-line poem that gives an account or that maybe an account's the wrong word, but that sort of takes us into the heart of, I think, what what you're trying to do. And you say, quote, at the frontier of the American and therefore at the frontier of the cosmic imagination. Could you you
1: help me understand this? Uh, Yes. There's there's a, there's a sort of grandiose Whitman spirit in that, that, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's that hyper insane optimism that, characterizes America but also the idea of the frontier is part of the whole spiritual geography of the American mind and in terms of poetry uh that that basically means trying to break through these dilemmas that we're going to get we're going to start talking about that culminate in in how to move the form forward specifically through the long poem which is uh what I see as the frontier and the reason I equate the cosmic and the American uh, imagination is basically just it's just a pure statement of of American chauvinism, you know, that America is the center of the universe. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's, there's like a line at the end of uh, Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, where I think Huckleberry says Huck says something to the effect of like wanting to go out on the territory. Um, yeah like he doesn't want to be overly civilized and there's something beautiful about the potentiality of a territory that in some sense it's in the united states and maybe will eventually become a state but there's like some sort of hopefulness that as that territory becomes a state it will somehow be better than the other states that it will like retain a higher level of freedom than the other like civilized like areas um
1: yeah exactly and an artist like Whitman who was so pure to like the essence of the American project. Like, you know, he really took manifest destiny to its limits, which become like, you know, positively cosmic. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So is, is there any frontier for Americans right now? Cause it seems like in some, maybe this is like an exaggeration or, or too much of a simplistic abstraction, but it seems like somehow the American spirit lost something when this like physical frontier sort of fell away. And then maybe that's even part of like how a sort of global American empire ends up happening, or, you know, something like the Monroe doctrine kind of like expanding out that at first, you know, we want to kick Europe out of like South America, et cetera. But like, you know, it sort of like expands and expands suddenly to the point where, wow, we probably have to like defend Ukraine. Otherwise like Putin could invade our shores, you know, at any minute. And again, that's kind of like an abstraction, but this sort of like projection where at first maybe,
1: I don't know, uh, yeah, not not to get too spiritual about it, but it's basically I think, you know, when the we run out of physical territory, it's it's like the frontier becomes mind and even, you know, how to deal with that problem itself is part of the frontier that is uh, America, you know. Right. Yeah, this is maybe a question I hadn't
0: uh, asked you to prepare for. So if it's putting you on the spot, like, by all means, just sort of like this wave it away or something. But I'm kind of curious. As somebody who's just started to read poetry a, lo- a little bit again, like Camille Paglia's uh, Burn, Break, Blow book. Uh, where she Her what of, book? It's like Burn, Break, Blow. Uh, there's I like do 40, 40 poems from like Shakespeare to maybe it has Joni Mitchell at the end, but it's mostly just great American poets and or, or English poets, obviously, but uh, they're all in English or none of them are translated. And she. Yeah. I don't know, like her three-page interpretations have just like blown my mind. um,
1: Yeah, I know she was educated by uh, Harold Bloom. She was one of Harold Bloom's students and and he is a master scholar of of specifically romantic poetry. So I imagine that that education is probably there and all that stuff. To, uh, not to counter-signal Polly or Harold Bloom, but Harold Bloom is really he's definitely more uh, positive about the romantics than I am. You know, I, I recognize they have all the aesthetic merit that he says they do, but on a, bro- on a broader level, there's certain things going on with the romantics that are negative in a way that I don't think uh, Bloom and probably then Polly doesn't recognize. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause it, yeah, specifically was her account of romantic poetry that I found striking. And maybe this is like to, to be too, <laughs> you know, sort of philosophic about romantic poetry, but it almost seemed like she had kind of a schema that you can kind of see in a lot of romantic poems that seemed to work for me, or at least I could see what she was saying, where there's some kind of, like, disgust at the, the modern world, maybe especially industrialization and in certain things that... Yeah. It's, it's, like, cut us off from nature, and then so you long for some kind of idealized past or some place that... Yep. ...is somehow better. You're like, no, there's something that's better than this. Um And then... Since you can't actually go to that place, it seems like your response is like, either I want to destroy everything that exists or I want to, like, I guess retreat into some kind of like emotional authenticity. It's like emotion is like the core of what a human is. Like to act well is to act on the basis of your emotions since those apparently can't be faked in a way that somehow your mind can be dominated by your society.
1: Mm. Yeah, uh, that's all very well said.
0: Uh, well, it's palliative, so whatever. I'm. Just- <laughs> Saying a better person's words, but, but I'm curious. Yeah. Like, yeah, what what do you see as like the the main problem? Because I I guess I can see some difficulties, like a, a like as if like your emotions couldn't be calibrated or like conditioned by your society. You know, like it basically to has
1: to do with the turn away from uh from epic to lyric, and the way that this happens. We'll get into. We can just start talking about this now. Uh, the way that this happens is is I think through Shakespeare, because the generation. Uh, You know, Milton, Shelley, Wordsworth, Byron, all these people, they all lived in the shadow of Shakespeare and Shakespeare was the model. But the difference between somebody like Chaucer and somebody like Shakespeare is that there is no narration in Shakespeare, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's it's drama. And so what that means is when you take Shakespeare as a poetic model, your whole your whole form is going to inevitably go towards lyric, and that's exactly what happened with the Romantics. And and what goes along with that is, in a, I would call it in a word, sentimentality. It's like there is this inner eye that uh, keeps looking at itself and keeps contemplating itself and keeps thinking about the subjective and the fanciful. To the point that it becomes almost sickening. And you will, we'll see, you know, when once we get to, like, Baudelaire and then later, you know, Pound, they've become so sickened by that whole, uh, you know, as, as T.S. Eliot would say in The Wasteland, the, the Shakespearean rag. Uh, mm-hmm. They've grown so tired of that hyper eloquent way of speaking. Mm-hmm. But I think basically what happens is that way of speaking, which is so powerful... In a dramatic and Shakespearean context, when you take it out of that, it basically destroys poetry. Because if you go back to somebody like Chaucer, you know, let's say it's 50% dialogue and, and it's 50% narration. Now, Aristotle said the definition of a poem, it's not enough that it's just verse. It has to be a representation of action. And mm-hmm. so the part that quintessentially defines what poetry is, is that 50% that's in Chaucer, that's not in Shakespeare, that the romantics sort of lose because they take Shakespeare as a model. And Milton is, is the best example. He, he's, he's, he's not quite a romantic, I think, but he's really a, a sort of transitional figure in the sense that he shows what happens when you try to take Shakespearean diction and write like a pure epic with it because Milton is uh, the weakness of Milton. As many critics have noted is that he's so effusive and so pompous that <laughs> it basically in the narration, he loses all of that sharpness that you find in like an Ovid or a Homer or a Virgil. And that's precisely because he's taking this Shakespearean uh, lyric mode Which is basically like a way to reveal the psychology of of the characters, and he's using that as a way to try and narrate an outer world. And the more and the more that the uh, the poets start doing this, the more and more they find themselves trapped inside of this subjectivity. You know, Mm -hmm. now all of this is like it tracks with a whole bunch of changes in the modern world in general. So I'm not. It's not so much that. Shakespeare himself is the cause of this or anything, it's just that there's this giant wave sweeping over the world, the so-called death of God, and this is the way that it manifests uh, in literature, specifically in poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so
0: when we were talking before we started recording, um, you had like a sort of I, maybe like a, a pithier, concise way uh, to yeah. make, like, your argument i wonder if you could say that and then maybe we could go back to shakespeare a little bit but maybe you could say yeah
1: restate yeah shakespeare is sort of like the transitional figure so we really are gonna have to start probably with chaucer but uh so the basic thesis is that poetry since let's say 1400 has more and more turned inward it moved further away from epic which was once universally recognized as the peak of both poetry and storytelling in general Mm -hmm. uh Further, this inward turn has exacerbated the quintessential narcissism of modernity. Uh, Therefore, poetry is failing to do its most ancient and primordial job of integrating man into the world. Mm. Uh, All this tracked perfectly with the loss of traditional community and, uh, like I said, the so-called death of God. Uh, The causes of this giant change in literature are multiple, but the main historical one is... Uh, We're not going to get into this because it's too much. The printing press, because poetry is made for reciting, whereas print creates this theater of the mind for the silent reader. And that's also how we end up with a novel, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But tracking that whole process is way too much. So we're going to focus on. Yeah, reading silently
0: is sinful. We don't need to talk about that right now.
1: Right. (laughs) Uh, On the way that it's played out in the verse form, Uh, Mm -hmm. starting with Chaucer, moving to Shakespeare, and then. Uh, as uh, What I was just talking about, the impact of Shakespearean dramatic verse dialogue on romantic lyric poetry. That's convoluted, but they, it's what happened. Uh, and then we'll talk about the moderns who were acutely aware of these problems and, and tried to take steps to reestablish this externality of poetry. And that's what the long poem is sort of all about. So, yeah, maybe I'll just say one thing before we get started. Um, this is
0: really cool because. I, maybe i don't know if you are a fan of Leo strauss, but i have learned yeah, a lot yeah. from him and his like students' writings, and like he sort of like re- reopens like this quarrel between the ancients and the moderns and i don't know but it, and and so he did that like in political philosophy, but then it's like really interesting to see then okay well, this probably this quarrel didn't just happen in political philosophy it happens like in all modes of human life or like all these different modes of thought. But like yeah. I don't know if like anybody who's has the sensitivity to this kind of Straussian mode of looking at the difference between the ancients and the moderns, but then applying it to poetry. Um, this is I'm so I'm really
1: fascinated to to hear you go through this. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So we'll start with Chaucer. Uh, Chaucer is basically he remains to this day an invaluable model for anybody writing verse in English, and it's amazing in a lot of ways. Chaucer, if you Chaucer reads as more modern than a lot of say Victorian poets <laughs> Joyce Joyce said of Chaucer he is quote as precise and as slick as a Frenchman <laughs> so there's a certain like humanistic elegance in his verse and it's something we find in Dante uh Montaigne and all the rest of the Renaissance let's give you an example of the this is this is right after the intro this is basically the beginning of uh Troilus and Cressida <laughs> This is, a, this is a modernized translation, but it's, it's still very slick. Mm-hmm. Here it goes. Well known the story how the Greeks, so strong in arms, went with a thousand vessels sailing to Troy, and there the Trojan city long besieged, and after ten years' siege prevailing in diverse ways, but with one wrath unfailing, avenged on Troy the wrong to Helen done by Paris, when at last great Troy was won. You can see how smooth that flows. It doesn't have. Uh, a certain sing songiness that a lot of bad poetry has. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most striking thing about Chaucer when compared to a contemporary poet is that Chaucer himself hardly matters or figures into the poem at all. Uh, mm-hmm. To borrow another phrase from Joyce, he quote unquote refines himself out of existence. So you could see here how we're a thousand miles away from uh, something like whitman's song of myself which Mm. you know i sing myself and celebrate myself chaucer assumes the traditional role of of the homeric role of the poet which is to tell stories about other people and not glorify and lionize himself you know right uh like plato points away from himself or something like that too um what do you mean
0: well, I mean, just that he point like it's just Socrates speaking. So in that sense, it's like right, right. A to the talking, like in his own voice, like yeah, always pointing away from himself. Just as it seems like you're saying Chaucer's
1: always pointing away from himself. Exactly. And again, Aristotle defined a poem as a, a mimesis of action. So this definition is key to my whole idea here because again, verse alone does not make a, a poem. He uses the example of Empedocles' philosophy. Uh, which was written in verse Mm -hmm. and this monologic form does not count as a poem for aristotle because it does not depict action so i want to note that by this criteria much of what today is called poetry is in fact not poetry at all but like really bad rhetoric with line breaks (laughs) um but chaucer is an example of a poet who perfectly fits the the Homeric bill. And much of the delight in reading him comes from the description of his characters, their dress, their role in the community, and and most importantly, their actions and their activities. Mm-hmm. But when we get to Shakespeare, this sort of information will only come through report, through dialogue. Mm-hmm. And by the time we get to the romantics, this information will largely go missing altogether. And we see... Somebody like uh, Milton struggling to try and get it back somehow, but genuinely struggling because the form that he's adopted is is really difficult, and that's the Shakespeare form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have to be clear when I'm talking about Shakespeare as a decline from Chaucer. I'm in no way questioning the greatness of Shakespeare as an artist. You know, Shakespeare is probably the greatest dramatist to ever live, and it's a testament to the sheer scale of his greatness that he's able to cast his shadow over both theater and poetry at the same time. Uh, And it's a testament to his power as a verse writer that he's known as the bard, you know, which is a title traditionally reserved for the epic poet and that he has, he is known as the quote greatest English poet while he only wrote a couple of narrative poems and, Because when people talk about the power of Shakespeare's verse, I mean, the sonnets are incredible, but they're mostly talking about the power of his character's dialogues and monologues. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's probably the greatest psychologist who ever lived. But the thing about that form is that it's inherently, you know, subjectivist and psychological. Uh, To illustrate the difference between Shakespeare and a traditional poet, Ho- use homer it's even more drastic homer is famed for the magnificent descriptions of warriors and of battle and his epic similes far more than he is for the dialogue you know i don't know what percentage of homer is dialogue but let's say it's 50% you know shakespeare is 100% so that 50% again has gone missing and uh you know it's not a problem for Shakespeare because Shakespeare is using uh, a dramatic medium. All these characters do exist in this fully externalized world, which is the stage. And they're all interacting with each other in that way. Mm-hmm. But but getting that other 50% of activity back into verse will become a problem for the romantics when when they take Shakespeare as this stylistic model. And mm-hmm. that, in turn, pushes them more and more towards subjectivity
0: Mm -hmm. yeah can you say just a little bit more about how the shakespearean form in terms of the play like the the characters helping themselves or shakespeare i guess choosing for them to help themselves to kind of lyrical compositions For like yeah a lot of their like sometimes characters will even speak in sonnets like i think right before romeo and juliet kiss i forgot if both of them like speak out like a full sonnet or if like they kind of have like a shared sonnet back and forth but nevertheless, like, you know, it's like, I mean, it's like pretty incredible, I suppose. But um, what what do you mean about the push towards subjectivity in the light
1: of how Shakespeare writes that? Well, it's it, I mean, it's basically just that every single every single line in, in uh, Shakespeare is written in first person. Mm-hmm. Right. So that oh, is. See that is how Aristotle is going to define the difference between drama and epic. In an epic, there's the mixed mode, you know, which involves narration and weaving the narration in and out of the dialogue. And that's really what poetry is, is doing that. Mm -hmm. But once you start using Shakespeare's first person speech as a monologue, it becomes extremely difficult to do that. Now, the person who illustrates the difficulty of doing that in this account is basically Milton. Hmm. But the people who will then show what happens when you sort of lean into this approach are uh, Shelley and Wordsworth. Uh Um, But let's talk about Milton again for a second, because Milton was a unique case. He Hmm. took the Shakespearean diction and he consciously tried to write an epic with it. The weakness, again, is that he lacks the concision of the older narrative poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will descri- this is how I'm going to describe the Shakespearean mode, and this is sort of similar to what Harold Bloom says about Shakespeare's characters uh, overhearing themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. The speeches are like a mind in pursuit of itself and constantly recording its discoveries. And that lends itself incredibly well to a psychological mode, but not to a mode where you're trying to depict action. So as Joyce said, from the sublime to the ridiculous is but a step. And Milton's highfalutin style often lapses into self-parody. And and Byron would later joke about this in Don Juan with the following lines. He says, fallen in evil days on evil tongues, Milton appealed to the Avenger time. If time the Avenger extricates his wrongs and makes the word Miltonic means sublime.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, incidentally, I think Byron was the best poet of the romantic generation, but precisely because he was the least romantic, the most worldly and, and the most external. Uh, another guy I want to talk about is Blake. Blake is even more interesting than Milton because what happens with Blake, his his famous madness uh, illustrates the whole dynamic that is going on here. Historically, Blake is constantly writing about these crises that are coming out of uh, industrialization. Mm -hmm. And what interestingly, what he notes is that man is being closed up inside of himself his world is becoming small and pathetic. And he's constantly describing this new man as a worm or a clod of dirt and things like this. Mm -hmm. And Blake's verse is a rebellion against this tendency, you know, but what happens in Blake that's so interesting is that Blake took Milton as his model so that he's also participating in this same tendency while he's trying to make war against it. And that's where I think we get this schizophrenic quality of his writing. But there's also an urgency and a sense that he's touching on something very serious uh, because he's as effusive as Shakespeare and Milton, but rather than using his voice to talk about other things, you know, Denmark or the fall of man, Blake, Blake, is using this very same voice to try and rebel against the very same tendencies of which this voice is like a kind of a symptom. Mm-hmm. And it, so there's this great, uh, the line in the four Zoas, which the, the subtitle, of this is the torments of love and jealousy in the death and judgment of Albion, the ancient man. And, you know, I think it's fair here to read quote the death and judgment of albion the ancient man is in a way being conscious of this change that is is happening in man's identity and and his subjectivity and the way that he relates to himself and you can just hear the intensity in these lines here he goes all love is lost terror succeeds and in hatred instead of love and stern demands of right and duty instead of liberty Once thou wast to me the loveliest son of heaven, but now why art thou terrible? And yet I love thee in thy terror still. I am almost extinct and soon shall be a shadow in oblivion. You can hear how intense that stuff is, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, next is is Shelley and Wordsworth. And here is, is, you know, the romantics as such, as I would say. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here is where the Shakespearean subjectivism evolves and it's no longer simply the form pushing these things in, in that direction of subjectivity and psychologism, but -hmm. the content too starts to become that Shelley, uh, you know, is, is in my opinion, the best romantic poet and there is, it's mostly lyrics. He does have a few narrative poems, but even his narrative poems are explicitly, about this dynamic you take a last door or it's, it's also called the spirit of solitude. So in this poem, you know, a solitary man goes off searching for an impossible transcendence. Uh, Wordsworth, his most famous poem begins, you know, as I wandered lonely as a cloud and his greatest work, the prelude is it's an autobiography. So I think of the prelude as a kind of reversal of, of Dante because it shows how this idea of the self has changed since 1300, the time of Dante and then, you know, later the time of Milton. In Dante, this I that he's talking about that goes on the journey, it's everybody. And so Dante's story, as Aristotle said, poetry concerns what always happens. Dante's is universal in scope, but the prelude is about Wordsworth. It's not about man. And insofar as Wordsworth universalizes himself in the prelude, he does so in, as a very, very romantic idea of the poet as, you know, a sensitive person, you know, mm-hmm. but this idea of the poet as a sensitive man that, that Wordsworth shows is really developing and to this day is still what a lot of people think of as a poet is not, uh, it's so different from, you know, quote unquote, the bard, which is the figure that Blake is constantly celebrating, you know, that Chaucer was, that Homer was. And the bard is a much more, I would say, fierce and and, uh, masculine figure than the romantic poet. Uh, (laughs) And he's a sort of, the sensitive man is like the figure who shows the way the poetry is changing and turning inwards away from action and, and towards the fanciful, basically Uh, it's interesting to bring up Blake again, because he was trying to rebel again against all this, but, but he explicitly identified himself with this figure, the bard and not, you know, the daydreaming Lake poet. Mm Mm-hmm. So this whole development started to come to a head as the industrial revolution really took off and we found ourselves in, in these ugly, filthy cities. But what's interesting to note about modern poetry is that it's not a simple acceleration of the tendencies in the same way that romantic poetry was. And this is something that gives me hope uh, the moderns were extremely tired of the rhetorical excess and the flowery language. And it is easy to see why, if you read enough, even the best, even Shelley, uh, the flowery lyricism can become truly nauseating, particularly <laughs> in the context of the modern world, you know, mm-hmm. uh, reading something that's so sentimental and romantic when the world is so bleak is not it feels incredibly self-indulgent in a way uh the world was getting faster dirtier uglier the romantic poets started to seem like a dandy you know (laughs) And, and the french were the first modern poets in this sense baudelaire and then the symbolists i think uh they were the first to sort of try and meet this whole thing head on and they wrote a lot about filth and urban decadence and dark psychological dynamics and i think this was actually a very healthy response to a certain disgust with the sentimentality and and the self-obsession of the romantics but eventually we get to pound and pound is the guy that we really got to talk about when we talk about the moderns because he's the one more than anybody else who is conscious of the situation that poetry was in uh and to bring the whole thing full circle, it's interesting that Pound was adamant that Chaucer was a better poet than Shakespeare. Not mm. not just a better poet, but someone with a more complete understanding of human nature and of human society. Uh, mm. Shakespeare is, I think, a little more transgressive, less trad than, than a lot of people <laughs> think. Harold Bloom, uh, we were talking about him before, he's pretty much insistent that Shakespeare is ultimately a nihilist. And <laughs> I can't say one way or the other, if that's true, but definitely there may even be a little bit of that darkness in that we get in Baudelaire and people like that, uh, that comes down from Shakespeare as well. You think about somebody like Hamlet, you know, or, or Macbeth, they're very tortured people. Right. And so that more or less brings us to the contemporary situation, you know? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, let's talk. That's cool. Uh, I, I look forward
0: uh, in a big way to like, just listening to this again after we're done to really like think
1: it all the way through. Yeah. Um, we we've, ba- we've basically got one more generation between pound and, and, uh, and ourselves to talk about, but, that won't take so long. And that, that's a very interesting conversation as well. Yeah. Okay. So oh, maybe I'll just try to
0: put part of your argument into my own words just to make sure that I understand what you're saying. Um, okay. So Chaucer, uh, by Pound and perhaps Aristotle's account of things, is superior to Shakespeare in as much as because it's sort of split between narration and dialogue. Chaucer is more or better able to show action, in
1: the yes. sense. Yes. And if you like, I've struggled with this so much myself. You know, if you really want to be anal about it, the reality is that Shakespeare is not a poet. You know, mm-hmm. he is working in a different genre. Mm-hmm. He's wor- he's a dramatist. Right. And so, it's so like- we ra- it's it's so it's so ridiculous not to call Shakespeare a poet, but at the same time he can, it's very difficult to take Shakespeare as a model. Right. Okay. So,
0: so then there's like some sense in which when somebody like Dante, you were saying says, I like, you know, when he, like those sort of like famous opening lines uh, to the Inferno, uh, we're supposed to all think about ourselves as somehow having like fallen away from the way that we're supposed to be or something like that, that we could have like kind of fallen asleep in some sense or like, Sort our poor choices or habits just kind of like lost the kind of self awareness that's required in order to search for, or to live out the best way of life. Yep. But that for Dante, it's like, okay, I'm talking about man as man. And that's how you should be thinking about this poem. Whereas you're arguing that Shakespeare in some sense creates a temptation for other poets to move towards a more radical subjectivity where you're just talking about, your own mind. I think you you said something like your mind searching for itself. And then even though Shakespeare, well, I mean, yeah, there's a lot to say about exactly what is Shakespeare's ultimate like account of the cosmos and man's place in it. There's like
1: a huge uh, discussion, obviously. I think when Bloom, Bloom always used to say that basically we live inside of Shakespeare's mind. (laughs) And this is sort of, Related to that in a way because what happens with these romantic poets is that when they start writing, they become like a Shakespeare character, Mm -hmm. but they don't have the same distance from the character that Shakespeare did. Right. They themselves are like an actor that gets lost inside of their role. And it's interesting. Nietzsche, who I would describe as a romantic philosopher, Uh used that same terminology to describe his own dilemma in his own situation that he was like an actor who, who was struggling to not get lost inside of his role so it just I think that goes to show how wide how widespread the sort of crisis was
0: yeah okay so then Milton he the character the speeches that his characters give uh more or less seem to by your account and I think this is this is right like they represent like an attempt to sort of put shakespearean language into the mouth of characters but there's also he brings back the narration but he's using lyrical uh, like helping himself to like lyrical poetry to put into the mouth of the characters so they sort of speak in this kind of like high flutant way all the yeah. time so somehow like the son <laughs> like the, <laughs> like adam and eve and and it's kind of striking too since like the conversations between adam and eve uh, are kind of like the biggest innovations on Genesis that like Milton adds. That those are the things that like aren't yeah. they, that he really thinks about. So, well,
1: and the so- other thing, is basically, uh, this is I think a, a matter of the difference between Shakespeare and Milton as people. Uh, Shakespeare had a real earthy sensibility, and what's so powerful and magical about Shakespeare is that when you join that incredibly high falutin, effusive. Language to this really earthy sensibility it's so rich, mm. but Milton has that really, really effusive highfalutin language and a really, really highfalutin sensibility at the same time, you know right in certain moods there's really nothing hits quite like Milton, but at certain other times it it really does read as rather ridiculous right yeah, so
0: okay, so then you also talked about so this move towards subjectivity or kind of intense concern with one's own mind and wanting to like have other people see your indulgent reflections on your own mind. I, I really liked your line about the romantics, you know, eventually come to sight as sort of dandies. Um, yeah. So I guess I'm like curious about two things then. So what, uh, although maybe this is too big of a question, but you can, you know, whatever I'll, I'll say anyway. Um, so there's like some, uh, th- this move towards subjectivity, the, the, okay, so the Romantics, in a big way, are responding to the Industrial Revolution, as you point out. Like, you know, something like I don't know, Blake's like the chimney sweeper is like a exactly. uh, comes to mind. With respect, but to but I that, think he,
1: even something like Wordsworth's, you know, his reverence and his worship of nature is also a kind of flight away from. He talks about in the Prelude. He talks about how happy he is to escape from the city and and finally be able to be at peace in the countryside. Right, and then I
0: think it's like his poem uh, – I'm going to remember, misremember the exact title, but it's like when he's looking at England from – or sorry, London from Westminster Bridge. Like in that poem, he suddenly is struck by the beauty of the city for a moment, but then it's not really the city that he's struck by. It's rather the city yeah. when it doesn't look like a city, when it's like the smoke is not coming out of the you know factory or the chimneys yet, when there's no humans moving in it. When he looks at the city in the abstract, all of a sudden he's like, Oh, it looks kind of like nature does.
1: <laughs> but it's right. only it's, it's only good by that standard. Yeah, and he's constantly exulting in his own transcendence through these these experiences, you know. Yeah. So so and, like and a- Shelly <laughs> Shelley is also interesting because Shelley had this really <laughs> Shelley was like a a very arrogant person and really thought of himself as high high above the common person and that was sort of part of what it was to be poet you know and again it's it's another example of 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 the narcissism you know that comes from this style of literature
0: yeah no and and that like (laughs) just reminds me of like the way in which well, this sort of maybe contemporary attitude towards the poet, or that the Romantics, did so much to shape the way that we understand what a poet is. They yep. would think of like somebody like in a black turtleneck or whatever, who's like very angsty <laughs> and like wants to share their thoughts about like yeah, their own suffering. Exactly. Um,
1: yeah, that's like Shelley meets Baudelaire, right there. Uh-huh. That whole style, uh-huh. because it's this person who's in- is incredibly arrogant about. they are but at the same time is very dark and and despairing you know
0: yeah so does and again this is like sort of the the big question i was pointing to before is like does does christianity play a big role in creating this kind of interiority like not to say that um i don't know christianity somehow or the that i don't know like jesus or his apostles were like hopeful of something that's happening but maybe i can just illustrate this with a very brief example yeah like you look at like beowulf versus sir gawain and the green knight and sir Gawain and the green knight there's like multiple moments when gawain is like on his way to try to find the green knight's chapel and he fights like all sorts of monsters like on the way there but the poet goes out of his way to say but these aren't like very important these fights like that's not what's an issue what's an issue ultimately in what i think i think tolkien's interpretive essay says something like this is that the bulk of the narration is devoted to lady Bertilak tempting sir Gawain into yeah like sexual temptation uh which is a little bit contrived like she's not actually lusting after him she's kind of been put up uh, it's eventually revealed but the point is is the poet thinks that the action of resisting temptation that internal action is more worth depicting than this like domination of like physical space over monsters and animals and things like that, and that that, that it points us this, this interior action is ultimately more profound, more beautiful, more elegant, but just better, better worth speaking about, or more worth mm. speaking about than Beowulf like defeating Grendel, uh, his mother, and a dragon, or ultimately or something like that. That there's like
1: yeah. I that's is, Joy, Joyce does something beautiful with that idea in Ulysses, where he takes the, you know, the the love that regular people have in their daily lives. And he puts that on the same scale as Homer's Odyssey hmm. uh, with the romantics. I think that the romantics are essentially uh, they're they're completely anti-Christian uh, right. and their their whole thing with the, the sole and important exception of Lord Byron are all caught up with that whole death of God thing and, and all the madness that came out of that. That's where, that's why word Wordsworth is worshiping nature, you know? And that's why Shelley tries to become this sort of hyper spiritual platonic idealist for the very same reason, you know, yeah. uh, Byron, I, I do think is the best, romantic poet and I think Don Juan is the best romantic poem and that definitely has something to do with the fact that he that he was uh, preserved his Christianity hmm.
0: that's interesting so okay so I think um, yeah so I think I've gained a lot of clarity about the argument and it's been nice to like go through the different examples so, so then you said that there's um, one more development that happens between the romantic oh, right, right. you described and like where we get to today.
1: Yeah. So, so Pound died <laughs> and the Cantos were a, a failure. The, the, they were an artistic failure, but they birthed this particularly new and American genre of poetry. And that is the so-called long poem. So the Cantos were a failure only in an artistic sense. Uh, as a living piece of the tradition, its importance is like unspeakably large because it allows for this huge variety of experimental attempts to, to re-externalize poetry. And like traditional epic, the long poem is, is simultaneously first and third person. It's mixed again. So it creates this opportunity to, to somehow get that 50% that we lost back in there. So, mm-hmm. so some of the, the, the good ones are The Bridge by Hart Crane, Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction by Wallace Stevens, uh, A by Louis Zukofsky, and The Maximus Poems by Charles Olson. Mm-hmm. They all share the same impulse that Pounds has, and, and they're quintessentially American because that quest for a new narrative and a new kind of epic is akin to manifest destiny. Uh, mm. So, this new epic is like the poetic frontier of America, you know? Mm. And like the traditional poetry, the long poem is also concerned with that magical function of poetry of directly affecting them and creating this interface between a text and a reader's life that unfolds in both directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the long poem is still afflicted with that same hyper-subjectivity and obscurity. Uh, Pound talks about this, I have a quote from him here, uh, where he's talking about how uh, you know, it takes you <laughs> 10 years to learn your art, and then it takes you another 10 years to overcome the education that you've had because you you've inculcated all of that stuff from the tradition that is precisely the obstacles that need to be overcome you know right. yeah so i have i have a book here that's an example of some of the stuff that's this is a long poem called i boombox and here's an example of maybe it when it, when it doesn't quite hit i'm just opening to a random page here yeah. outside a superbly scanned background sun was straightening up or further disrespected what went wrong semi circles call for attacks on iraqis straight rains are rage in the suburbs of los angeles the emotions are great it goes on like this and this -hmm. sort of thing is never going to move people or teach people or please people unless they have a highly specialized education about this sort of writing you know so in my own work I'm trying to find a way through this wilderness, you know, I'm in quest of that frontier and it's all for love. You know, it's not for money Mm -hmm. and it's not for glory because, and it's all because I know the power that poetry has to change your life because I know the power that Dante and Homer have had on me. And it's, I don't know if you've seen that meme where it's like, people say, I see what you've done for other people, Lord, and I want that for me. (laughs) <laughs> but in this case it's the opposite. You know, it's like I see I see what you've done for me, Muse, and I want that for other people. And I want American poetry to to rise to that potential. Right.
0: Yeah. So I guess that maybe would lead to the sort of like last question, which is what what is it possible for a poet to do in the contemporary moment? Um what like what are what are the highest like if if you were to take well, not take over the world i mean but like historically <laughs> in a certain sense like how how does the contemporary american poet like revive the poetic tradition or move the human soul to long for beauty and excellence uh, or just even
1: just healthiness like what yeah i actually have, have a rather I rack rather bland craftsman like idea of of what a poet is and what a poet should do like pound. You know, I think of a poem as, as an artifact that you make. And Mm -hmm. so for me, it's really as simple as an intensive study of all the best poems that have ever been. It's taken me a really long time to get this sort of architectonic view of, of the history of poetry and it's really important to have that because if you don't have that i think you have a very warped idea of what poetry is specifically romantic and modernist poetry becomes the paradigm of what poetry is by definition Mm -hmm. and so when you start working in the medium poets take that as as the highest model that they can possibly to aspire to and That's led to a real decrease in quality. So I really just think poets need to spend a lot of time reading Homer and Dante and Shakespeare and and Joyce and just drawing from that into their own work. But maybe read a little more Chaucer and a little less Shakespeare, you know. Right. Wow. My friend Bolingbroke won't like to hear that last part. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is, again, Shakespeare is unbeatable. As a dramatist, he is the greatest dramatist and there's nothing quite like it, but mm-hmm. it's drama. It's not poetry. Mm-hmm. There's no narration in it, you know, and sure. Shakespeare, sure. I mean, Shakespeare's, he did write, uh, the, the rape of Lucretia mm-hmm. and that is a magnificent narrative poem, you know, mm-hmm. uh, some people speculate that Shakespeare became a dramatist because he couldn't make a living being a poet, which <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that was true.
0: Uh huh. Interesting. Wow. Well, I, man, nobody like. Uh, I I sort of was like inspired uh, by Palia to read more poetry, and then you know I would kind of seen your work and thought like, whoa! Like I want to talk to somebody you know who's actually like making poems and who understands these things. But I, I think this is like a really beautiful project to, to sort of, well, not well. On one hand, make poetry, but on the other hand then give this like hidden history of uh, like not the history of political philosophy, but the history of poetry in this way, this is, this is ambitious and exciting. And
1: I learned a lot. Yeah, And I, you know, I love that. I've discovered you and the other in- new institutions like passage press. It's like, there's this new network of institutions popping up and it's a beautiful thing to see. It's, it's like uh nature is healing. <laughs>
0: Yes, nature is healing. Nobody, do you have any, anything else you'd like to add uh, that you hadn't been able to say any previous point? Boss, no, God bless you. God bless you too. Uh, Montana and nobody...